Well, I can say uh, at the very outset of this message that we're in trouble. I, I say that because on, on my notes here, I have 38 pages of notes. And we are not, I promise you, we will not go through them all, okay? But it's just an indication of how immense this subject is this morning. And I should have known better, given the fact that uh, there are three passages of Scripture that are being referenced by Peter in chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. Three Old Testament passages that, that allude to the stone of stumbling that we're going to be talking about today. We're not going to be able to look at those in any depth, but we'll certainly allude to them and, and look at them briefly. But then in the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the stone on three occasions. And then the Apostle Paul, he also points to the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone on at least two, I think three occasions. And so <laughs> the, the material today is immense in terms of breadth it's also immense in terms of, of depth, and we're just only going to be able to scratch the surface. But the takeaway this morning is that, that God desires to fashion in you something that cannot be true apart from Jesus. He wants you to give you, He wants to give you an experience that the people in the Old Testament longed for, that the people in the Old Testament craved. The psalmist even says that one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The expression of that psalm and the words of that psalm are the reality for every believer today. If you're in Christ, if you're a person of faith, if you, as we find in our passage today, if you are coming, it's a participle. It, it helps you to, to understand this ongoing action that needs to be a part of the, the pattern of your life, this continual coming to him. As you come to him, the living stone, this can be true of you. God desires to fashion in you something that cannot be known apart from him. Well, in the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, of course, he was in Jerusalem, and he's teaching in the temple. On Friday, he will die. But on the first day of the week, there is this triumphal entry that we're all acquainted with, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and the, the crowds receive him as Messiah, that they recognize him for who he was, even though there is some superficial kind of knowing. They're laying down their coats on the ground as he, as he rides by. They're, they're cutting off branches from the tree, shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In just a few short days, they would put him on a cross. They would Condemn him to death, and he would die for us on the cross. He would come into Jerusalem, and the one emphatic statement that he would make is riding into Jerusalem and coming directly to the temple. He would begin to purge the temple, and while in purging the temple, he would say, 
My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He established at the beginning of his ministry, and now at the end of his ministry, the temple was more than for prospering. It was for prayer. It was not for just a gathering of people. It was not just for ceremony and for sacrifice. It was for something greater. It was to enjoy and experience the actual presence of God. He would leave Jerusalem late in the evening and he would make his way with his disciples to the Mount of Olives. This would be the pattern for the, for the week and they would spend the night at the Mount of Olives and make their way back into the city where Jesus would teach. And there on the next day, Jesus was teaching in the temple and the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to Jesus and challenged him in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And then in verses 33 to 40, Jesus launches in to a parable. This parable that makes a connection with a stumbling stone, Jesus will apply to himself this Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah. He will help them to see that he is the one they've been waiting for. But it will come after he's described the response of the chief priests and the elders to his ministry through this parable. He says, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit to draw near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed the other and stoned another. And he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? This was the question that Jesus posed to the chief priest and the scribes. In setting up this story and, and developing for them the, the, the nation of Israel and, and particularly the, the tenants who were, who were uh, overseeing the law and, and, and uh, given and commissioned the responsibility of sharing that law, that standard, that standard of righteousness to the people themselves. How would they respond? How would they react to the master in sending his servants to them? The response, of course, was wicked and ungodly. And in posing this question to the chief priests and the scribes, their response is found in verse 41 when they say, They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our, in our eyes. Jesus, in applying this to himself and helping the chief priests understand that they had been reckless shepherds, ungodly and wicked, they had not managed 
the commission that they had been given to oversee the law and to dispel the standard to the people of Israel, but rather had chosen to, to reject the very one who came, who was promised to them, Jesus himself, the Messiah. The question this morning is the same for us as it was 2,000 years ago to the chief priests and scribes. The question for us at the end of this passage, in looking at the chief cornerstone, the question is, what will you do with Jesus? How will you respond to the message of salvation? How will you respond to the life and ministry of the living stone? You cannot be neutral. You cannot decide to opt out of the question. There is only an acceptance or rejection of Jesus himself. Dismissing him will not have him go away because, as Jesus says, the stone which the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Just because you may reject Jesus does not erase what God has said about his son himself, that he is the cornerstone. It will just put you on the outside. It will remove from you the benefits of faith that we're going to see in our passage today. Peter will draw from these words and he'll make the same, a similar point as we look in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. Turn there with with me if you would. I'm going to read these verses for us and we'll we'll seek to, to make our way through this passage by answering three questions. But let me read this and then we'll begin. Verse four says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the, the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The three questions that we're going to to present and seek to answer today are these. Who is this living stone? And why was he described in this way? What are the implications of him as being stone? And what would draw us to him? What would create in us a desire to come to him as to the living stone? The second question is, what did the living stone come to accomplish? What was his purpose in coming? And finally, what happens to those who reject this living stone? We're going to pick our way through this. We're not going to make it all the way through. But by God's grace, we'll be able to focus on the things that the Spirit brings to our attention and uh, pray, if you would, that God will help us to, to develop the things that are important for us to know today. First, I want to answer this question, who is the living stone? Who is this living stone? We see there at the very beginning of verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone. There are several things I I believe that 
that God is pointing to in, in helping us to, to differentiate the, the significance of this stone and, and to draw your heart to him. First is he is God. As stone, he is God. In this passage, Peter draws from three Old Testament passages. We're going to look at those briefly a little later on. But, but in each passage and, and, and through the Psalms, we see this marker, this quality that is only true of God. He alone is rock. He alone is the one who is referred to in the Old Testament in this way. Notice that Peter says, coming to him, a living stone. He doesn't use the definite article, and, and there's a reason for that. Because in not using the definite article, he's, he's seeking to draw out the quality of this stone. Not just in pointing to the stone as a specific person who is Jesus, which he is doing, but, but to draw out for us and emphasize the quality of this stone itself. That he is the living stone. And later we're going to see he is the precious stone. He is the chosen stone. That all that you have in Jesus is the quality of God. We find more about this stone in verses 6 to 8, which we'll get to in a, in a little bit. But through the Old Testament, we see that God alone is rock. Let me draw your attention just to a couple passages in the Psalms. Psalm 18, verse 2 says this, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now that is, a, that is a defining characteristic. Look at all those things we see about God as deliverer, as the one who is shield and refuge and salvation and stronghold, only to be found in God himself. Verse 31 says, For who is God but the Lord? And who is rock except our God. God alone is rock, and so in these Old Testament passages, both the psalmists and the prophet Isaiah, and we find as Jesus is referring back to these passages, and as Paul will draw out the meaning of these passages, we see the quality of God. And so when you reject the living stone, you are not just rejecting some other individual. You are rejecting God himself. So don't reject. Come. Come to the living stone. There's an invitation even now. Hear the invitation from God for you this morning. Come to the stone. Come to God who is rock, who is refuge, who is salvation, who is helper and deliverer. Come to God who is strength in shelter, in salvation, who is permanent, who endures the quality of rock that remains, that is true yesterday, today, and forever. This is the one who God is calling you to come to. Come to God. Come to the rock, the living rock. But he is also Messiah. In our passage this morning, Peter, again, quotes from three Old Testament passages. Uh, verse 6 is a quote from Isaiah 28, 16. Verse 7 is a quote from Psalm 18, verses 21 to 23. Verse 8 comes from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. I think I, I have those on the screen, but I think they're also in your notes. I'll give you the opportunity to, to look at those by yourself. 
But drawing from those passages and drawing from the, the context of those verses, but we see several things that are true about God himself. We, we see that God is the one who lays the foundation. God is the one who brings salvation. God is the one who grants this living stone to come, but God is also the stone himself. All of these passages are messianic in quality. All of these passages promise the presence of God. All of these passages promise salvation and deliverance that can only be found in one individual, the Messiah, this Christ figure who is promised in the past and, and present in the present day. Jesus applies this passage to himself to help these tenants in this parable, to help these chief priests and scribes to understand that when you reject me, you reject God, and you reject the promised one, the Messiah, the one who came to save. The one in whom all of the qualities and promises of the Old Testament culminate in him, the Messiah. You reject him. You reject everything that is truly Jewish, everything that leads to true salvation, true identity in God himself. He is both builder and material. He is both craftsman and cornerstone. The metaphor that's used here is to point to him as salvation and sanctuary, the shrine, the temple, the spiritual place of worship. Jesus is assigning all of these qualities to himself as Messiah. You reject this living stone, you reject your Messiah. So, where are you this morning? You cannot remain neutral. You will either come to the living stone or you will reject the living stone. God is beckoning you to come to enjoy the benefits of access to him, of relationship with him. You come to him through faith. We're going to look at that in a moment. Are you coming? Have you come to Christ as God, as Messiah? Thirdly, we see that he is the word. He is the word. Again, Peter has, has made these very deliberate connections for us. He's used the word living throughout chapter 1, and he picks up this same word in chapter 2 to help you make the connection, which for some reason, until just a couple of days ago, I, I had not been able to make myself. <laughs> he is the word. He's the word of God. Follow this with me. Chapter 1, verse 3, notice this. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, here it is. He has begotten you again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have a living hope because you have a living Savior who is pointing your attention, directing your hopes to this living inheritance in heaven, undefiled, does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This living hope that we have in verse 3, now takes on an, a new dimension, a, a, a different perspective. As we go to verse 23 of chapter 1, notice this. Since you have been born again, same word, by the way, as in verse 3, you've been born again, and this time not to a living hope, but, but, but through other means, through an imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. Same quality of that life-giving hope that we have in verse 3, 
this life-giving hope, breathing spiritual life into you, birthing you through the power of this imperishable seed, this living and abiding seed of the word of God. Christ is what's living in verse three. The word is living in verse 23. And now Peter brings them all together in chapter two. Verse four, chapter two, verse four. He says, as you come to him, the living stone. We see through our passage that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. They stumble being disobedient to him, okay? This, this living stone is Jesus. They're stumbling over him, but, but notice how he summarizes it all in, at the end of verse eight. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. What is that? Is that Christ? Or is it something else? Here it is. They stumble because they disobey the, what is that church? The word. The living stone is the living word, is the living Christ. And so there's no wonder. There's no wonder why we are called to crave the word. Last week we saw in, in verse, uh, verses three, two and three, right? Crave the spiritual milk of the word. You crave the word. You grow in relationship with God as you know the living stone. And just uh, extra, I, there's so many connections in, in these passages. I, in, verses, in chapter one, verses 22 to 25, the, the overarching uh, command, the, the word in those, in those verses is love one another. You've been put into a spiritual community, love those people. In chapter two, verses one to three. So you can't carry out your family relationship with God unless you're in community. In chapter two, verses one to three, you can't grow in your spiritual life unless you're in community because loving happens as you put away from yourselves envy and deceit, hypocrisy, malice, and slander, right? And then you can crave the spiritual milk, this, this horizontal relationship that we have, that God has put us in relationship with one another because of faith in Jesus Christ is, is emblematic of this relationship that we have with God. This vertical relationship can't happen unless we're, unless we're uh, focusing and, and nurturing the relationship he's put, a, put us in together. You're put in community. Now, he moves to verses four and eight. <laughs> and he's still building on the same principle. You are in community. You can't worship God independently. Isn't it interesting how easy it is for us, for us, for me, my tendency is to separate, to distance, to do things on my own. And yet, the, the call for us throughout this passage, throughout chapter one and chapter two, is, is we are built for each other. We can't do anything in the Christian life independently. We can't grow in the Christian life. We can't worship in the Christian life. And, and next week, we're gonna see you can't witness in the Christian life unless you're in community with believers. We see that he is the word. Do you crave the word? And in craving the word, are you coming on a regular basis to this living stone? Are you tasting and seeing that he is good? Kind of what we saw in the end of verse three. That, that there is this, this longing for the word because of the sustaining quality, the nourishment that you get from the word of God itself. 
And when we understand the, the quality of this living word, we, we run to it. We desire it. We see it for what it really is. The word which is life for us. And then he is also temple. He is temple. We see this as he merges verses four and five together, we, we begin to, to see now uh, how this quality of the stone takes uh, another step forward. That, that he is God, he is Messiah, he is word, but he is also temple. All of these qualities that we find in the Old Testament are true of Jesus. We see that here. Notice, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen in precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. That's the goal. The goal from the beginning of creation has always been worship. God's desire for you, God's desire for me is worship. And he has made worship possible through faith in Jesus Christ. Stone sometimes refers to a carved precious stone like a gem or a jewel. We, we see on the ephod of the high priest as they, they wore that, those stones that were, that were carved and cut just right. But, but often and usually it means a building stone. And here it takes on a dimension of not just any other stone, not just a, a stone that's fit into a wall, as we saw in Nehemiah, but, but a stone that has the purpose, a greater purpose of worship and calling people to spiritual ministry. This is what we observe in verse 5. Jesus as the cornerstone of something significant. Jesus came to establish worship. In the final week of his ministry, we see this as a, a goal. He he says in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, as they're walking out of the temple one late evening, his disciples ask him this question. They say, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Wow, they must have said. Look at this structure. But he answered them, you see all of these? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. You see, the temple, however significant it was in Old Testament worship, was not the end game for God. It was not the end point. It was not the, the finish line. He, he was not as concerned about a physical structure as he was with establishing a spiritual house. That spiritual house which is begun in Jesus himself, who at the very beginning of his ministry, when he cleansed the temple the first time, says in John chapter 2, verses 18 to 21, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has been taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus as temple, Jesus as cornerstone, with the goal of assembling other choice stones, other chosen and precious stones, and fitting them together to be this master temple of worship of God. Chosen here 
is the word eklektos, the, the word that we have seen at the very beginning of our time in 1 Peter. Jesus was that chosen uh, stone, chosen by God. Verse 6 says he's the chosen cornerstone. And next week we're going to see from verse 9 that he created those to be a chosen race, selected out, ordained by him. Of course, he was chosen by God and precious. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Precious being valuable, honored, highly prized, rare and perfect. Every single aspect of his life fit and measured up to the standard. He alone was able to fulfill the law and the prophets as God had designed him to do. But what does this living stone come to accomplish? What does he seek to accomplish for us? What does he make available to us? There are several things I want to just touch on briefly. First, we see in verse 4, he accomplishes fellowship with God. He accomplishes fellowship with God. It says, coming to him. The ESV says, as you come to him, I it's not a very helpful translation because it's a participle which, which is meant to, to point to ongoing action, not just a one-time transaction. It's as you are coming to him, this present middle participle, it is indicative of those who, who are doing this for themselves. No one can come to the stone for you. You must come on your own. It must be an intentional quality of your life. Not just a casual observance, but purposeful. It's the word for approaching or coming near. It's a compound word, this word pros, which is a normal, and, um, which means to come to, and the normal verb erkamai, which adds intensity, denoting a drawing near to Christ in intimate, abiding fellowship with God. The writer of the Hebrews uses the same term a number of times to denote, to denote a conscious coming into God's presence with the intent to remain. For Peter, the word implied the movement of the entire inner person into the experience of intimate and ongoing communion with Christ. This was no casual coming. This was a coming on purpose, a coming to stay, a coming to remain, a coming to abide. This coming to him is paralleled in verse 6 at the end, which paralleled with believing in him. So coming to him and believing in him stand as, as parallel concepts. That is how we come. We come in faith. And as we said last week, you can only taste of him if you trust in him. You can only experience the, the best in who Jesus is by putting it to the test and seeing it for yourself. I'm convinced that we do very little coming in our everyday life. I'm convinced that just a peek at your Facebook account, a peek at your social media feeds would indicate what you really prize, what you really cherish, what you really spend your time focusing on the accolades of others, the making sure that you have enough people who celebrate your birthday, the people who are, who are affirming the various posts that you send. Did, did, did so-and-so agree with this? Did they, did they hit the up button? I don't even know how it works anymore, but is there a thumbs-up thumbs button now? Do they like this or dislike this? 
Am I finding my affirmation in the community around me or am I seeking to find my affirmation in Christ? Finding earthly solutions, using conventional wisdom. There's very little waiting, very little praying, very little depending on God. There's a lot of moving, there's a lot of initiating, there's a lot of striving, but not a whole lot of praying and not a whole lot of waiting. We're called and encouraged to come. Come to the stone. Come to the living stone and find what you need in him. Not, not look for the, the affirmation, the accolades, the, the, the things from, from this world that will fill you up, but be satisfied alone in the relationship that you have with him. You can have fellowship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith in Christ. And he is sweeter and better as we come to trust him. Next is likeness to God. We see that in verse five. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. So the living stone stands as preeminent, the cornerstone, the model, the, the example of everything that we are striving for in the Christian life, and yet, and yet the same quality is ascribed to you and to me, to those who are of faith. We are like living stones. We are, we are like him, presented in the same way, having the same quality and character because of the spirit who is, who is abiding in us. Peter describes those who come to Jesus Christ as living stones, implying that their, nat- that their nature derives from the nature of the resurrected Christ. We have the same quality. We're made for the same purpose. We're called to the, in the same name. We're identified the, the same way. He is chosen, and we are chosen. He is precious and honored, and by God's grace, that preciousness and honor flows to us in Christ. He's been given an inheritance and we have an inheritance in him and through him and because of him. He is called to be holy. You also must be holy in all your conduct as he is holy. He has called us into obedience to Christ and for obedience you have been established in your faith to be obedient to Christ as well. There is likeness to God. Can you even comprehend it? Next there is worship of God. We see that again in verse 5. Like living stones are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You were made for worship from the beginning of creation until the, the, the future eternity with God. You were made to worship him. And he has made that available through his son, Jesus. And not just, not just the, the temple itself, the, the spiritual house that he refers to here. You don't just stand back at a distance and, and see the presence of God, but you can experience it because he's also made you a spiritual priesthood. You have access to the temple itself. You can come into the very presence of God. You can carry out the spiritual sacrifices that he has called you to carry out so that The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, I beseech you, I beg you, I plead with you, 
on the sake of the mercy of Christ, you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable act of worship. You and I were made for worship. We, together, are temple stones of this great house that God is building. This spiritual house is only spiritual as the Holy Spirit is filling and abiding your life. And the Christian community is portrayed as a temple, implying that now, not in a literal stone building, is the place of God's earthly dwelling by the Holy Spirit, a place of true worship and acceptable sacrifice. It is significant, too, that this spiritual house and these spiritual sacrifices are meant to be done in unity with other believers. That's our final point. Unity with one another. I want you to recognize that the stones that are being referred to aren't individually temples. The habitation of God happens as the stones are put together. Notably, these stones are not lying about in idle isolation or disorder in Peter's description. They are not heaped in a pile or scattered across a field. Christians are not individually temples of God in the image that Peter presents. They are each put in place in a spiritual house for the purpose of being holy priesthood that offers acceptable sacrifices to God. The unity of the temple is derived from God's presence, the one cornerstone in a unity of purpose, there is one single temple into which all believers are built. The Christian church is not primarily a social organization, but a temple where worship happens and transforms believers. We find from Ephesians chapter 2, this description, verses 19 and 22, this is the goal of God for you in sending Jesus. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are a temple, a habitation of God as we, as we represent the unity that God has accomplished through his son Jesus in bringing us together, in worshiping together, in doing ministry together, not in isolation, but as a living stone, assembled stones who are made as a habitation of God in the spirit. And finally, just briefly, and we'll pick this up next week, what happens to those who reject this living stone? Well, all the benefits that we have described for those who enjoy faith in Christ, those who have come to the living stone, are going to be in reverse for those who decide to reject it. Rejected indeed by men, we find in verse 4. In verse 7, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. In verse 8, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, they stumble, being disobedient to the word, as they were destined to do. Wow, what does that mean? Come back next week, and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Let's pray. God, thank you that through Jesus, you have invited us into relationship. 
Oh God, we praise you for the fact that you have assembled these stones and you have given them the same quality in nature as your son Jesus because of the power of the Holy Spirit and through the the working of the word of God that has birthed us, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the living Savior. Oh God, this week, may we crave the living stone and may we carry out our purpose as your people to worship and to witness and to obey the things you've called us to to obey. And may we see the benefits, the benefits of worship personally, the benefits of worship corporately as it spills into the communities, as, as we welcome worshipers to come and to participate with us. May we see the power of the gospel at work in calling dead people to life and blind people to sight, spiritual sight. And may they be assembled as stones with us as well. May we see the power of the gospel alive and working, living and abiding word of God. May we get to see that personally. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you this week.